Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. This is the third part and the fourth part in our mini-series examining the rise of right-wing extremism in this country. Why is there a fourth part? Because my conversation with my guest today, Garrett Graff, was so compelling, I just couldn't stop asking him questions. I hope you'll enjoy. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. This is the conclusion of our conversation with Garrett Graff. If you didn't catch the first part of our talk, we welcome you to give it a listen. And now, let's resume our conversation with guest Garrett Graff. So, we've talked about the groups in the 80s and the 90s. Again, we know most about, let's say, Waco and the Branch Davidians. You know, you talked about this guy, Bill Cooper and Alex Jones. I think that probably Rush Limbaugh is in that. And right-wing radio has always been both a very popular and very efficient means of moving messages. What is it about the right-wing radio guys that make them, I don't want to call it compelling because they're not compelling to me, but they're compelling to an awful lot of people. Yeah. The series is not meant to be sort of an autopsy of, you know, what happened to the Republican Party, but you sort of can't help but think about some of that. And to me, it has always been a story of when the movement of the center of power of the GOP shift from people who are involved in politics and policy and people who are showing up who are actually interested in profit. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh, these other conservative hosts, you know, what they care about is the profit of their shows, you know, the power of their listenerships. And they sort of shift the center of gravity of the whole conservative movement by really, I think, making it one where the more extreme you are, the more power you have in the movement because you have these sort of vast tools of profit available to you. And whether that's Bill O'Reilly and his killing book series. As a historian, just as an aside, those must just make you crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, Sean Hannity and, you know, Alex Jones, you know, these are people who are making tens of millions of dollars, you know, radicalizing their listeners without really having to ever answer to voters or enact policy or negotiate politics. And this, I think, is where you begin to see the sort of split of the GOP from sort of the party that you knew, the party that I knew when I lived in Washington in the early 2000s, and where we sort of end up after certainly the nomination of Donald Trump, but, you know, I would argue sort of even, you know, the election of Barack Obama. Just one aside. So I think you mentioned in 1987, the Reagan administration ends the fairness doctrine, which basically said if you were going to spend 30 seconds on a right wing issue, you had to spend 30 seconds on a left wing issue. I'm probably vastly oversimplifying, but that was the basic idea, which was everybody had to have equal time. 
to discuss whatever their issue was. That goes away. And I've tried to explain this to friends and allies, Garrett, which is when you look back at this stuff, and it could be the rise of right wing, you know, white nationalist extremism or, you know, the Federalist Society or the Turning Point USAs of the world. So much of this stuff is not to your point, and it's the whole point of your show, is not new, right? The sort of conservative youth movement stuff started at the 64 Republican Convention for Goldwater. You know, these things have been going on for decades and decades and decades, and now they all seem to come together, you know, like the crossing of the streams in Ghostbusters, which is you're never supposed to have all of these things happening together, and now suddenly they do. Yes, and that to me is really the story of this whole season is you know what we sort of started to try to tell in this season of long shadow was how the extreme became the mainstream and that this movement that starts off with these truly extreme groups of the order and csa and the aryan nation in the 1980s becomes a force that helps inspire the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and I would argue in the last three years has moved only ever more to the mainstream of the Republican Party, that you have white nationalists, white supremacists, white power adherents, you know, not just on the fringes of the Republican Party today, but actually, you know, holding elected office sort of up and down the political spectrum. And not just white supremacists, but, you know, the rise of like QAnon conspiracy believers, which has a lot of roots in a lot of the story that we talk about in this season. You know, now you have QAnon believers in the halls of Congress itself and 9-11 truthers and often, you know, the same person. And you have Donald Trump playing QAnon anthems at his rallies. Right. Well, and, and, you know, just to bring that up to the present moment in Doral at the Doral Country Club in Florida, which is a Trump property, you had one speaker talking about blood libel, right, which is the idea that Jews kill Christian babies and drink their blood to live forever. That's really a thing they believe, folks. And then you had Michael Flynn, disgraced national security advisor, would be a felon, except that maybe you're always a felon, if, even if you've been pardoned, former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, hold his cell phone up with Trump on the phone and says, "If I, when I get reelected, Michael, you're coming back in. I mean, maybe the Germans have a word for this, Garrett, but like the insanity that that describes, is that why so many of us have so hard a time taking it seriously, that really believing it's going on? I think that's some of it. I think some of it is the sheer lunacy of so many of the key figures. You know, you and I were both talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene a few minutes ago without actually mentioning her name. You know, Paul Gozar, who, you know, has just been outed in the last 24 hours as employing a particularly virulent neo-Nazi staffer who works with Nick Fuentes, another person that we really shouldn't have to care about at all in American politics, but is someone who's, you know, having dinner with Donald Trump. You know, I think that there's a real challenge in a lot of this of like, we actually have to care about these people. Like these are people who by all rights should be the extreme far fringe of a healthy right-wing movement in America. You know, that there are, you know, you and I were talking about this uh, before we came on air, but 
There are real wackos on the left, too. They exist, but they are not dangerous and deadly in the same way that the extremists of the far right are. And the real wackos of the far left are treated like the real wackos of the far left. They are not considered the movers and shakers of the Democratic Party. And I say that as someone, you know, represented in Vermont here by Bernie Sanders, who is not actually one of the far left wackos that I'm mentioning here. You know, even as far left as he is, he is not a lunatic in the way that you have the believers of the conspiracy theories on the far right as an active caucus of the Republican Party in Congress today. You know, you mentioned a conversation we were having before we we went on air, and I, I was relating a conversation I had with a dear friend of mine I known for two decades. We worked together, staunch Republican, but, you know, I think a decent person, lives in a very red state. And hearing him say, well, look, you know, the crazies on the right, they're not that many of them. And, you know, the crazies on the left are just as bad. And I had to say, like, first of all, that's just not the case. I said, there's a lot more crazies in the GOP than you want to believe. And he said, well, you know, we just have to have these debates where, you know, everybody gets in a room and they debate policy. And I said, look, buddy, I, I love you. And I appreciate that you think that that world can exist, but it doesn't. The party that we worked in is gone and it's never coming back. And, you know, these are bad people and they run a lot of stuff. Well, you know, Trump's, you know, bad, but, you know, the judiciary and taxes and everything else. And again, it was a very, you know, lively but polite conversation, Garrett. But it seems to me, and I have this with a lot of my Republican friends, they're either unwilling or unable to see it. And I don't know how to sort of make the scales fall from their eyes. Maybe it's an impossibility. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, to be very frank, that was part of our goal with this series to try to trace some of the history of this as an ideological movement and to show that this is not something that is modern and organic and came from nowhere. This is a 40-year story of how white supremacy and white power groups made a lot of very conscious decisions helped by people in places of influence, you know, conservative talk radio, Fox News, and elsewhere, to mainstream some of the worst traditions of American politics up to and including landing Donald Trump in the White House. And that this is something that we shouldn't think about in a vacuum. And we shouldn't think about as, oh, if we just get rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gozar and we just defeat Lauren Boebert in Colorado, you know, we get back to George Herbert Walker Bush and you know, Jim Baker and George Schultz running the country. So let's talk about this. So, you know, let's bring it up to January 6th, because I remember my dad talking to my dad on January 6th, and he described his vision of watching what was happening at the Capitol. Like you see that footage, that scary footage of when the water's rushing out from a beach right before a tsunami hits, and then it comes rushing back in. You're sort of like, what's happening here? What is this? What is this? And then before you know it, it's, you know, literally or figuratively, the wave has crashed. But to your point, you know, there were QAnon flags, there were Gadsden flags, there were Confederate flags. I don't think any of us can forget the guy, you know, talking on the cell phone in the parking lot with the Camp Auschwitz t-shirt on. There's obviously the, the goon with the helmet and the horns. 
And today, as we're recording, is National Peace Officers Memorial Day, I believe. And I say that because, you know, but for the bravery and quick thinking of a guy like Officer Eugene Goodman, we live in a very different country. So take us how all of these tendrils finally come together, where now you don't have a 2014 or 2016 where you have a Bundy standoff against the government. But now the executive branch is actively attacking the legislative branch. Yes. This is, I think, one of the things that is much easier to tell with a little bit of hindsight is how these threads come together during the course of Donald Trump's presidency. You know, you have this rise of a much more naked, much more virulent white power movement beginning with that march in Charlottesville. and. That and then there's a gun rights rally in Virginia that you probably remember too, really sort of change the picture of what we're used to in political protest in America, where you have sort of guys in tactical gear with AR-15s, you know, marching in stack formations through the crowd in a way that like we really didn't before Donald Trump arrived on the American political scene. You know, most people didn't really want to bring their assault weapons to political events. Or to the Subway sandwich show. Right. And this is something that's new and weird, and it's something worth talking about. And that it is very directly related to this mainstreaming of extremism over the course of the 2000s. You see it at the Bundy Ranch. You see it in these early... Trump era protests in Richmond and Charlottesville. And then you see what to me is is one of the sort of worst aspects of this, which is this rise of the politically inspired white supremacist mass shooting and this globalization of the white power movement that takes place over the course of the Trump presidency as you know, mass shootings like the Charleston church shooting. Right. El Paso, Allen, Texas, Tree of Life Synagogue. Exactly. Inspire other people to sort of further shootings up to and including the horrific massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. And to sort of show you how tightly these events are, are linked, the shooter in Christchurch specifically says in his manifesto that his goal is to inspire a race civil war in the United States with his massacre in New Zealand. And that this becomes something that, you know, you, you rattled them off there, you know, the Tree of Life and El Paso and all manner of awful further mass shootings, all sort of tracing back to this same desire. You see this rise of the Proud Boys, which sort of starts as almost a joke, you know, ends up as this pretty violent, nasty, pro-Trump street gang. All of this explodes in the spring of 2020 with the COVID lockdowns and Trump's desire, you know, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. And guys with guns go into the Michigan State Capitol and bang on the door of the governor's office, right? There's that image that's indelibly stuck in my head of the guy just screaming at a cop right in the face. And, you know, that's not normal. And I guess we should be thankful that, you know, the, for the forbearance of those police officers, because, you know, it would have been probably well within their rights and probably well within their instincts to say, you know what, I'm not sticking around for this guy anymore. 
and you also sort of imagine how all of those things then inspire the crowd on January 6th to sort of think that it's okay to storm the Capitol. You know, they've done it before elsewhere. They've succeeded elsewhere. And you have this series of events, you know, that goes from COVID through the George Floyd protests, you know, the rise of, you know, these militia groups as sort of this catch-all patriotic security force that is, you know, showing up in places like Kenosha, where, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse is, you know, one of these sort of freelance security guys, you know, running around town with the Boogaloo Boys, you know, one of these sort of wacky militia groups. Right. Shoots three people, kills two of them. Exactly. And then is celebrated. I was just about to say that because that's the one thing that is concerning. And, and let's be clear, most of social media has its tendency to be a cesspool and, it, and the algorithms do that for us, unfortunately, and we're susceptible to it is how many people are like, you know, he killed two of them. He shattered the other guy's arm. Too bad he didn't have better aim. Right. Like just really scary stuff from people who I've whose accounts like I've known for, I don't want to say many years, but several years who would not have said that 10 years ago. Yep. And by the way, like this is a thread that we are still seeing very much alive in, you know, the heart of Republican politics today. You know, over the weekend, we had Ron DeSantis tweeting about what a hero that Marine was in New York City for strangling a guy on the New York City subway. You know, this sort of idea that we need to kill more of our neighbors the sort of shoot first, ask questions later strain of heroism that I think is really making America go crazy. I mean, I guess that would be my question. And this is less about the show, but more about just sort of your observation as someone who has, I think, a pretty good handle not only on American politics, but also on American history, which is, you know, is there a fever, you know, that has to break? You've talked about how all of these things have come together. Do you have to pull one strand after another, or is it a natural sort of disillusion or dissolves? Is it at the defeat of a Donald Trump? Is it the defeat of somebody else? Because, you know, I was reading something, a book earlier today, and it was like, you know, when you live in the West, when you live in the United States, you always just assume, Garrett, that democracy is going to win over autocracy and capitalism is going to win over communism. I think a lot of us just make an assumption it's going to be fine. It's always been fine. Why wouldn't it be fine? And I think that's sort of the sleepwalking aspect that really worries me. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that is exactly where we are today, which is we are at a really pivotal moment in American politics. And, you know, we said this in 2020, we said this in the midterms where, you know, we're still in it. This movement is not dead. It is far from it. And it could very well still come roaring back in 2024 and destroy some of the foundational aspects of our democracy. You know, Donald Trump's being pretty explicit that him coming back in 2024 is a vote for revenge and autocracy. You know, I think that when you talk about, you know, how we defeat this, the answer is, you know, not one big thing, but a lot of little things. It is saying violence doesn't have a place in American politics. Again, as we were recording this on Monday, a couple of hours ago, some guy with a baseball bat stormed into 
Congressman Jerry Connolly's office in Northern Virginia and assaulted two of his staff. Nancy Pelosi's husband was hit in the head with a hammer. He was looking for her. Right. We don't know the ideology of that attack, but we should all, you know, regardless of party, condemn attacks on members of Congress, members of Congress staff. You shouldn't really be taking a baseball bat to anyone, regardless of the circumstances in the politics. And that this is a, a prosecution question that, you know, the people who step out and conduct these acts need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. You know, I'm really heartened by the pretty quick verdicts of seditious conspiracy against both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, which, you know, it, again, if you listen to the whole Long Shadow podcast season, the U.S. government typically doesn't get those cases right. In this case, we did. And, you know, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, is going to be going away probably for a really long time, provided Donald Trump is not reelected in 18 months. You know, he'll pardon all thousand people charged in, in January 6th. So, you know, this is something where there's a prosecution element, there's a rhetoric element, you know, you need to not vote for people who believe that violence has an important part in American politics. You know, we need to turn out the worst of the election deniers, which America largely did in 2022. I hope that that trend continues. But we are very much still in this fight, as you said, and it's not going to be over in two years or, or probably five years at this point. Garrett, I think that's right. And I think this is the part, too, that's most important, which is it's easy for you and me to sit here on this live stream and say, be not afraid. Right. But that's the other part, too, which is fear is a key component of this stuff, which is did the shooters in El Paso or, you know, San Diego County or Tree of Life or Buffalo know each other? Not personally, but they all lived in an orbit together. But their individual acts are part of something bigger. And that part of something bigger is keeping us all scared, keeping our heads down, maybe keeping us in our homes, keeping us disengaged or disengaging us because they know, the bad guys know, that if you're disengaged, you're more likely to say, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see it. I just want the storm to pass me by. Yes. And, you know, there's some, whatever that saying is, all that's required for the bad guys to win is for the good guys to do nothing. You know, I think one of the things that we really struggle with is this really is a very concerted movement. It's very organized. I said to you before we got on the air, you know, I started this season, you know, nine months ago researching this, you know, with the entire premise of the second season of Long Shadow being this is all one story over 40 years. You know, all of these things, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City, the Bundys are related to January 6th, you know, Donald Trump, the modern far right extremism. And I was still shocked over the course of my research and the interviews that we did to see just how linear a story this really is of 40 years of a movement that really sort of starts in the 50s and 60s with, you know, the Birchers and the, you know, old KKK moves to the point in the Republican Party where they get Donald Trump as their nominee in 2016 and deliver him to the White House. This is something that some people have been very carefully thinking about for as long as you and I have been alive. Right. And, you know, 
I think there's a better than average chance, maybe an overwhelming chance he'll be their nominee again in 2024. Yes. All right. Well, listen, this has been, you know, just an incredible conversation for my part, uh, Garrett. But where can our folks find the podcast? Where can they find you online? The podcast is Long Shadow. It is available wherever you find your podcasts. It is the second season. The first season is worth listening to as well. It's looking at the lingering questions of 9-11, which is the subject of one of my other books. Questions like what was the target of Flight 93? You know, who was the 20th hijacker? What was the Saudi connection to 9-11? And then this second season, Rise of the American Far Right, is unfolding right now. It's seven episodes. We've got the sixth episode coming out on Wednesday, May 17th, and then the final episode coming next week for our time as we're recording this on Monday, May 15th. And then I'm Vermont GMG on Twitter, and you can also find me. I write a newsletter called Doomsday Scenario, which you can sign up for on my website, garrettgraff.com, G-A-R-R-E-T-T-G-R-A-F-F.com. Perfect, yes. Tune in, listen to both seasons immediately. Get them on your phone or wherever you listen to your podcast. Get Garrett's newsletter as well. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. If you are watching this video right now on YouTube, hit that subscribe button to the Lincoln Project YouTube channel. We'd love it if you join us. And if you're just new to the podcast, please go back and listen. This episode I'm recording now with Garrett and the last two have been a three episode arc on right-wing extremism from different perspectives. And I hope that you will download those and listen to them. Garrett Graff, thank you as always, everybody else. I'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.